and we're reading from Isaiah. It's Isaiah 9, verses 2 to 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Second reading, Philippians chapter 1, 12 to 26. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here for the defence of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labour for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Thanks, Dave. Let me add my welcome. If you haven't met, my name is Paul. I'm the pastor here. Uh, you join us on week two of a sermon series in the book of Philippians. If you missed week one, it's online on the website. Uh, let me pray. Father, we thank you for just space in our week to stop, to gather, to sing, to pray, and to hear the scriptures read, and now to sit under the word as it's explained. Spirit of God, pray that you would help me to speak clearly, truthfully, to handle this word correctly. 
And Lord, I pray that no one would leave this building tonight unchanged uh, by your word. For Jesus' sake and for his glory. Amen. Uh, You know the the quote well, uh, to be or not to be. That is the question whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take the arms of sea of troubles. Uh, You know the quote, I wonder how many of us actually know what it really means. It's such a famous quote, but do you really know what that quote is on about? Famous words from Shakespeare, familiar words from Hamlet. But do you have a clue to what it really means? If you don't know, it's um, Hamlet's father has died. His mother has married Uncle Claudius. He's just found that Uncle Claudius killed his father. And his famous soliloquy, he's thinking, which is better, to live or to die? And I share that because tonight we come to possibly the most famous verse in the whole of Philippians. And my fear is that we know it, and we quote it, and we love it, but we haven't got the foggiest what it really, really means, or the implication of what it means for our Christian lives. The verse is Philippians 1, verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me, says Paul, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If you ask Paul, what's life about, Paul? He would say, ah, this is my life first. My life is Christ. My life means Christ. Christ is my life. Uh, Jesus Christ is the the controlling factor in my life. Uh, Jesus Christ is the person who directs me and guides me and defines me. My life is all about Jesus Christ. And that's why I've called this sermon and my main point tonight is this. Intoxicated by Christ. Here's a man who doesn't just know Christ, doesn't just love Christ. He is utterly intoxicated by Christ. Everything about him oozes Christ. Christ impacts every part of his being. Because when you've met the Lord Jesus Christ, when you've had that personal encounter with Jesus when you've understood his grace, when you've understood the love that he's lavished on you, when you've looked at the cross and you said, it's not just a fact of history. At that place of Calvary, Jesus died for my sin. Jesus washed me clean. When you've understood that he's redeemed you and restored you and forgiven you and he's given you the hope, the certainty of eternal life, when you've met Jesus, he changes everything. Jesus changes your marriages. Jesus changes your singleness. Jesus changes your parenting. He changes your attitude to work. Your attitude to yourself, to your money, to your travels, to your ambitions. He even changes your attitude towards death. He changes everything. When I think of the phrase intoxicated by Christ, I think of a lady called Diana she loved Jesus, intoxicated by Christ. Her passion was kids. Uh, let me say, she was not paid to do kids' ministry. She wasn't employed by any church. 
She loved teaching kids about Jesus, whether it was at school or in church or in foster homes, on the streets, she would just talk about Jesus all the time. I think of a Christian lawyer called David, partner in a big law firm here in Sydney, father of three grown-up kids. He's intoxicated by Christ, and so that's what defines him. He's a Christian lawyer. That impacts his morality, his ethics, his decisions, the way he treats his staff. He's a Christian husband. He's a Christian parent. Jesus changes everything for him. When I think of intoxicated by Christ, I think of a friend of mine who died two years ago, or less than that, a year ago, called Mark Ashton. He's a, he was a minister of the largest church in Cambridge in the UK, St. Andrew the Great. Let me just read a bit from this paper he wrote. It's called On My Way to Heaven. Mark Ashton on facing death with Christ. And forgive me if I get emotional. In the spring of 2007, I first had pains roughly in the area of the, of the gallbladder. Uh, the surgeon found cancer, which had invaded the liver. It was past surgical solution, and there's apparently no effective chemotherapy to cure. The oncologist estimated I might have six to nine months to live. I said to the surgeon when he broke the news that what he had just told me was, for me, a Christian believer, not bad news, but good news. It wasn't the end of the story, it was just the beginning. And I saw an imaginary speech bubble appear above his head saying, this man is in total denial. He said, but I've lived 62 years, a very happy life on earth. For over 40 of them, Jesus Christ has been my Lord and my Savior. I can have no regrets. The main reaction was then and remains now one of gratitude. God has done all things well, and I believe he's doing this thing well, too. In many ways, I was more ready to die on the 8th of February, 1968, the day after my conversion. But 40 years later, I can see now that much of what I've striven for uh, and much of what I've allowed to fill my life those 40 years have been of dubious value. I'm not now going to gain further reputation or achieve anything more of significance, and I realize how little, how little that really matters. As I start to clear my effects, I recognize how I've allowed them to clutter my life and how little I actually needed them. Now, opportunities to tell us about Jesus Christ have become clearer and more urgent when you're a dying man. And he goes on to say, my death forces me to face the resurrection of Jesus. And no longer is it a bold fact of history. It's crucial. It's crucial for every person who faces their own death honestly. Until I'm dead, I can't know what will happen to me after my death, but I know Jesus Christ has risen, and I know him, and so I will know him then. He is my assurance in dying, and his resurrection is central to Christianity. So trust in God's love. That's why it's so important to be realistic and to be biblical about death. In dying, I want to say to those I have loved and to those who have loved me, don't magnify me. Remember reality. I was someone who sometimes got you cross and irritated you and let you down and disappointed you and hurt you. So please don't remember an imaginary relationship with me. It was good, but it could have been better. I loved you, but I could have loved you better, just as you loved me and you could have loved me better. So don't let's trust in our love for one another. Let's trust in God's love for us. So the change in our relationship which my death will bring you 
can strengthen each of you in your relationships with Jesus. It's my prayer for my family and friends that my death will be for them a great strengthening and clarifying of their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord took him home on Easter Saturday. See, there's a man who is utterly intoxicated by Christ. His life is all about Jesus. And when you've had that joy of meeting Christ, you can say, verse 21, for me, to live is Christ. And to die, that's gain. And Paul is writing from prison, dirty, damp, rat-infested, prison cell in Rome. He's writing to a church in Philippi who are partners in the gospel. And he wants them to know that he is still intoxicated by Christ. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. The word there is salvation. See the footnote, salvation. He's not saying, I know I'll be released. He's saying, whether I'm released or not, I know I'll be saved. I need your, your prayers. Please pray for me. I need the help of the Spirit of Jesus. We all need that. But this is it. This is what it means to be intoxicated by the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in verse 20. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed of Christ. But I will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I hope you've got this. Paul is about to stand before a court and be judged. And what he's saying is, uh, if the verdict is favorable, if I'm released, Lord, I pray that my life would exalt you. And if it's not favorable, and if if I'm executed, Lord, I pray that my death would exalt you. But whether I live or whether I die, please, Lord, just help me to always exalt Jesus Christ in my life. May I never be ashamed. May my life and my death honor my Savior. Now, who can talk like that? What kind of mad nutter can talk like that? Here it is. He can talk like that because for him, for Paul, life does not revolve around him. Life is not all about his needs and his wants and his comforts and his desire. For Paul, life is all about the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that the old hymn? All for Jesus, all for Jesus, all my beings, ransom powers, all my thoughts and words and doing, all my days and all my hours, all for Jesus, all for Jesus. And that is Paul. It's all about Jesus. And that's why I sort of preparing this sermon this week is just not me for six, because, yeah, Jesus gets a look in him in life, but is it all for him? Do I actually stop and think, well, well that decision that I make... Uh, help me to exalt the Lord Jesus Christ. And if I decide to do that, uh, will I have an opportunity to talk about Jesus? And if I decide to take that action, will that help me to honor him in my life? It's extraordinary. Uh, Jesus' honor, Jesus' glory, Jesus' name, Jesus' fame, that is what Paul lives for. That's what defines him and controls him. And that's why he says, verse 21, uh, note the link word, for, because. 
That's a connection. Because to me, to Paul, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Now look at that verse. What he's saying is, to live is Christ. So, God, if I'm released, if I escape prison, that would be awesome. Because if I got out of prison, God, I would have opportunities to, to maybe travel to that city to people who have never heard about Christ and preach the gospel to them. And if I get released from prison, then I could write a letter to that church to encourage them in their relationship with Christ. And if I get out of prison, then maybe I could meet with some believers and pray with them and encourage them in their faith. And if I get out of prison, Lord, I could have maybe another day, a week, another year, another ten years just to, to serve you, Lord. For me to live is Christ. But if I die... That would be awesome too, because I get to see my saviour. I get to see him with unveiled faces. It's kind of a win-win situation for Paul. And you kind of see the cogs turning, and he goes, actually, God, this is a dilemma for me. Imagine Paul in his prison cell, and he's thinking, Lord, I could be released. And that would be awesome. But I could die. <laughs> that would be awesome too. God, you know, I'm not quite sure which one to choose. When you think about dying, please don't think that Paul is saying, you know, oh, I'm going to be in a nice hospital bed and there'll be nurses and doctors around me and all my needs will be met. For Paul, to die means that he'd probably be chained like a criminal, taken into an arena, and there'd be hungry lions there, and they'd be released and he'd be devoured by the lions. And if there's any of his body left that might be thrown to a mass grave. And he kind of weighs up the option. Get to travel the world, preach about Christ, get to be mauled by lions. Mm, not quite sure which one, God. But he is, verse 22. If I'm to go on living in the body, that would mean fruitful labor for me. I'll keep serving you, God. Yet, what shall I choose? I, I just don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart. The word is to sail away. I desire to sail home, to go home, to be with my Saviour Christ, which is better by far. Now, who talks like that? A man who knows Jesus intimately. See, this is the difference. This is a man who doesn't just use the word Christian as a, a label. He's not just following Jesus for the benefits that he can bring him. He's not just following Jesus, expecting an easy life. He's not just selfishly thinking about his needs, his growth, his comforts, his uh, spiritual life. He thinks about Jesus. And when you see Jesus like that, it does change your whole life. So let's play a game. Let's play the game fill in the blank. How would you fill this sentence to describe yourself? Or how would people who are closest to you fill in a sentence to describe yourself? Describe you. For X, for you, to live is... What's the word you put there? If you put the word family, to live is family. If your life is all about your family, then die is not going to be gain. Because you're going to leave them behind. For me to live is career, jobs, work. If that's true of you, then when you die, 
that's not gain because you left it all behind. For me to live is fitness and health, a fit, healthy body. If that's you, then, then, then die is not gain. For me to live is, is Christ. Everything about my life is shaped by Jesus. My marriage, my singleness, my plans, my desires, my aspirations, it's all about Jesus. And if you can say that to live is Christ, then the second half makes sense. To die is gain. You've got to believe that. The death for the Christian is always far, far better. Whether they die at 9 or 19 or 29 or 99, death is better by far. Because you get to meet your saviour. I don't know whether you watched a Christian die. If they really are intoxicated by Christ, it is very different. The story of a man called Andrew who's dying and he invites his family in for his last few hours. Grabs a piece of paper and just writes that verse. Writes the word gain. He knows where he's going. Listen to this, a guy called John Payton who was a Christian missionary. Over 100 years ago, he was a missionary to South Sea Islands and another older Christian man said to him this. He said, uh, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And the missionary replied, Mr. Dixon, you're advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring my Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. In the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours, both in the likeness of our Redeemer. There's a man who understands this verse. I've got to ask you at this point in this sermon, have you met the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm not asking whether you come to church. I'm not asking whether you know the facts about Christ. I'm asking whether you've had that personal encounter with Jesus. That has utterly transformed your life. For me to live is Christ. So what it looked like to be intoxicated by Christ. It means that you'll take every opportunity to, to proclaim Christ. You will take every opportunity to proclaim him. Because your, your lens for life changes. If it's all about Jesus, your lens changes. You see people differently because people really are lost without Christ. You see your world differently because if it's all about Jesus, then every day, every opportunity is about serving him. And you get to love your neighbor. You get to care for those in need. And you'll see your circumstances differently. That's what Paul did. Look at verse 12. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that What's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And what's happened to him? He's gone to jail. He's in prison. He's in chains. But there's no pity party. There's no bitterness. There's no feeling sorry about himself. He kind of sits there and goes, Okay, God, that wasn't my plan. I didn't plan to end up in jail. But that's where you put me. So that's where I preach. It's extraordinary. And that's what he does in verse 13. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace garden to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Remember, jail is different in Rome 
The palace guards about, about 9,000 soldiers and they'd be on four-hour duty and they would come and they would chain themselves to the Apostle Paul and they would spend four hours next to him. And what he's saying is that during his imprisonment, all of those soldiers have heard the gospel. I'm sure Paul didn't meet them face to face, not all 9,000 of them. But you can imagine the guard who's just been guarding him. Oh, I've just spent four hours with that Apostle Paul. He's a bit of a weirdo. You know, he's singing and he's praying and he's talking about Jesus all the time. And he's different. Like, he's in prison, but he's content and he's rejoicing. And what is it about him? And you can imagine the Apostle Paul as the next guard comes to duty. And he sees the guard walking towards him. He, he doesn't think, any food, what's the meals like? Has he got water for me? He's thinking, awesome. Captive audience, four hours. Get to talk about Jesus. And I just wonder whether we look at our life like that. Every circumstance, every situation we get to share the gospel. Let me be very clear. You don't have to talk about Jesus. You don't have to talk about Jesus. But if you're intoxicated by him, you'll want to talk about Jesus. You get to talk about Jesus. Let's just look at your calendar, look at your, your diary. You head off to that family lunch. Do you actually stop and say, Lord, it would be great this lunchtime just to have one little opportunity to talk about Jesus. As you find yourself sitting next to someone on the, on the train, do you just take out your headphones and go, Lord, if it's your will, just one little conversation about Jesus today. As you volunteer to do fair trade markets. Do you come there thinking, Lord, what a great opportunity. I get to stand here and I just get to meet people and talk to people and share, share my life and share Jesus. You come to community lunch. You get fed. You get to sit and talk to someone next to you and just share your life with them. What an opportunity. What about your disappointments? When you get sick, do you whinge and complain? Or are you like the Apostle Paul? I'm sure when Paul got sick, he was thinking, wasn't my plan, God, but you know, get to see the doctor. Maybe I could talk to the doctor about Jesus. When your plans don't work out and God's plans are not your plans, if you're intoxicated by Jesus, you see life differently. You go, Okay, God, how am I going to use this situation that you've placed me in to be a witness for Christ? And let me tell you, it does change your whole diary. I love training for triathlons, but I don't go to triathlon training just to run. I go to build friendships to talk about Jesus. I love going to coffee shops, but I don't have to go to coffee shops and get takeaway. I choose to do that, to build relationships with these people so I get the opportunity to talk about Jesus. It just changes your whole diary, your whole outlook. I was thinking this week, what would help us as a church to be bolder in sharing the gospel? I don't think we need prayer for more courage because we don't face persecution. We don't face imprisonment. What we really need is a deeper passion for Christ to be loving him deeper and deeper and deeper. And we need each other. We need each other to be doing it. That's what happened with Paul. 
He says in verse 14, because of my chains, most of the other brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. He's kind of saying, you know, when they see Paul doing it, they're spurred on to do it. Isn't that true? I think of a lady who's at Saturday Night Church, and you know, she kind of, every time you talk to her, she's always recounting a conversation that she's had with her boss about Jesus. It doesn't make me feel guilty, it just spurs me on. I think of another person who you know, goes to get his hair cut and manages to talk about Jesus while she's having his hair cut. And that doesn't make me feel guilty, it actually just spurs me on. I could do that. I think of other people in this church who are witnessing to their family and their friends and they're inviting people to simply Christianity and giving away books about Jesus. And when I hear about it, it doesn't condemn me, it doesn't make me feel guilty, it just spurs me on and thinks, I could do that. We need each other. We're grappling with the theme for the year, reaching those we know, reaching your family and your friends and your colleagues who don't know Christ. Let's encourage each other. Let's share stories about people we've invited to church or conversations we've had because it will rub off on each other. If you love Jesus, you'll take every opportunity to proclaim him. Uh, more briefly, if you love Jesus, you rejoice whenever Christ is preached. It's crazy. People think verses 15 to 18 are notoriously difficult. Actually, they are very, very simple. The problem with these verses is that we don't like what they're saying because we're so narrow and so reactive. And let me walk you through them. He said in verse 15, it's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. So two groups, the some and the others. The others out of goodwill, who do so in love, knowing that I'm here for the defense of the gospel. There's one group of people, and they're preaching Christ, and they're aligned with Paul, and we like them, and we love them. But there's another group in verse 15 who preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. And they're there in verse 17. They, they, they preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir trouble for me while I'm in chains. And you've got this group of people who they don't like Paul, they're threatened by Paul, they want to make life hard for Paul, and their motives are totally wrong. They're selfish, they're petty, they're territorial, they're calculating, but they're still preaching Christ. They're not these false teachers. They're not preaching another Jesus like Galatians or 2 Corinthians. These people preached the, 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 the crucified, raised, ascended Lord Jesus Christ. It's just that their motives are all wrong. Now, believe it or not, there are Christians like that. We're proud and we're envious and we're jealous. There are churches like that. They hear of another church up the road uh, preaching Christ and not quite the style that we might do it in. And people are being converted. And we're good at finding faults and criticizing, but we are slow to rejoice. What's Paul's attitude? It's extraordinary. They're attacking Paul. They're attacking his character. They're making life hard for him. And he says in verse 18, what does it matter? What does it matter, their motives? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. See, he trusts that God is sovereign, that God will choose his people, and as long as Christ is preached, he's not going to question the motives of the people doing it. And I think we need to learn that. Learn to rejoice more and criticize less. Of course we're discerning. 
Of course, we, get, we don't ignore heresy or false teaching. But if the gospel is being preached, if you hear people being converted, rejoice. Uh, the last one is this. If we're intoxicated by Christ, we will work hard for the good of others. Now, this one is a slap in the face. There's a warning here. It's a slap in the face for a me-centered culture and a me-centered church. It's a slap in the face for people who just think, me, 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 my needs, my wants, what's best for me? Look at verse 22. He says, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I'll, I'll keep serving, I'll keep working, I'll keep serving my Savior. But what's that fruitful labor for? Verse 24, he wants to depart, he wants to die, but, verse 24, it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and your joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Do you spoil it? You, your joy, your progress in the faith, it's all about you. Paul is going, you know what? If it was left to me, my wants, my desires, I'd rather die. But for your sake, hey, I get to serve. You know, I'll work hard amongst you, I'll serve hard among you, I'll make hard decisions, I'll make selfless decisions, I'll, I'll sacrifice some evenings for you, I'll, I'll miss out on my little clique of friends who will cuddle me and help me. And, because it's not about me. It's about how I can serve you. How I can see you grow in your faith. It's just beautiful. When you love Jesus like this, other people's faith, other people's joy, what's best for other people, what's best for God's church, what's best for the rest of the group, that becomes your, your focus and your aim. Not what about me. It's the joy of working hard for other people. You know, I get to see that every week here at Church by the Bridge. I get to see kids' church leaders who give up their Sunday mornings to come and teach the kids about Jesus. I want to say thank you to those people who do that. I'm sure you'd much rather lie in bed, go for coffee with friends, go for a run with your little clique of friends. But you don't. You come here and you serve to see other people grow in their faith. And I see it in connect leaders who are juggling you know, busy work lives and busy family lives and, and yet they're sacrificing time to teach and pastor and love others. Thank you. Thank you for being other person-centered. And I see it in people who you know, are here and they're cleaning and they're doing suppers and it's not about them. It's about how they can encourage fellowship here so that we can encourage each other in the faith. Thank you for people who do dinners and suppers people doing music, people doing the PA and the PowerPoint, just people serving in different ways because it's not about them, it's about how they can grow other people. You know, we come to church and it's, it's, a, it's a mindset change. Instead of what will I get out of it, you're going, how can I encourage somebody else tonight? And you go to your connect group and you might not like the people who are there, but you're not saying, it's not about me. How can I serve them tonight? And that's what happens, friends, when you are intoxicated by Christ.
You love to talk about him. You rejoice to hear about conversions. And you just labor. You labor for the Lord to see others grow in their faith. And so I pray that this church, 645, will be able to say, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you because you're worthy of praise. We adore you because you're our Savior, our Lord, our brother, our friend, our mediator. Lord, we thank you that you live in us by your Spirit. We thank you that you've called us to be your disciples. Lord, I pray you'd help us to live for you, to be utterly transformed by you. Please, Lord, do that in our lives for your sake and for your glory.